Hello and welcome to or welcome back to the Performance Rising Podcast. It's been a while. Like most people, my life has taken some twists and turns due to COVID, but I'm happy to be back uh, as we continue to explore intersections of culture and sport and identity and many other related topics. Today, I am back uh, with Rick Cantor, the Senior Associate AD for Administration at Longwood University. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Matthew, thank you so much. I'm very excited. Um, really great, really great opportunity. And um, I love the the intersection of culture and sport. It's very good. Uh, before we start, I have a bone to pick with Rick. I asked him uh, just before we got on if this was his first podcast, thinking that I was about to introduce him uh, to the world of podcasting. He said, no, this is his second. So there's a little beef already. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overlook that, Rick, for now and uh, just really look forward to getting into it. Absolutely. So, Rick, you have had a, an interesting journey. We can jump right in. I've worked at several institutions, different institutions, different profiles. And if you could walk us yeah. through that journey to how you got to uh, Longwood. Yeah. So I actually I grew up in Pittsburgh uh, and ended up going to undergrad at uh, Bloomsburg University and studied in exercise science. So I figured out early on, actually, when I was a sophomore undergrad, um, that I was really excited about strength conditioning. That was like my thing. So I emailed all of these coaches in the Pittsburgh area so that in the winter and in the summer, when I'd go home, I would have an opportunity to try to volunteer my time because I knew that was how I was going to get in. So I emailed all of these coaches in the winter of, I believe, 2007 and probably 30 some schools. And there's tons of schools in Pittsburgh. Heard back from one coach five minutes after I sent the email and it was before 7 a.m. His name was Todd Hammer. Uh, he worked at Robert Morris University. And uh, that actually was the very first place I started. I started as an intern there. Uh, and he had really opened the uh, opened the door to me to the, the world of strength and conditioning, all these different types of methodologies and stuff that I wasn't actually learning per se in the classroom um, that really, really expanded and really bolstered my passion for strength and conditioning and what it, what it really brought. So quick question for you. Why did you care so much about strength and conditioning? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I kind of gravitate towards it. Um, uh, I gravitate towards the training process early on. I played sports growing up. Um, I always uh, really liked the element of uh, the strength side. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, I think I, I found that I had tried uh, personal training. I had worked at gyms, um, you know, trying to, you know, go into that. And, and to be honest, I really wanted the mentality of athletes, uh, specifically college. Um, and, and that was something that really drove me, I think, towards that. Interesting. Yeah. Great. So call up a coach, you cold call him and what happens next? So after that, uh, pretty much continued interning there in the summers and the winters, I'd go back and volunteer that landed me additional internship opportunities. I worked at Pitt with the men's and women's basketball team, uh, that led me down to Auburn. I worked with football for a summer uh, going into, um, I think, the year after they ended up winning the national championship. Um, and then finished up my undergrad and went back to Robert Morris for two years uh, doing my grad assistantship for coaching. I worked with a bunch of coach, a bunch of the uh, teams, uh, also uh, studied sport management and did some influential leadership tactics stuff for my practicum. Um, and was in between. Uh, I, I finished my master's. I was still working as a part-time assistant Robert Morris. 
um, and I wanted to stay in college strength conditioning, um, but there wasn't really a lot there. And the I heard that there was this part-time uh, strength conditioning job open at Longwood that had a tie-in to also be able to uh, adjunct teach if you had your master's and teaching, you know, basic fit, phys ed and whatnot. So I didn't really have anything. So I was like, okay, I thought it was like, I'll go down, you know, a couple months, maybe a year, throw my name in the hat for a bunch of, uh, you know, other full -time, full time assistant jobs and see what happens. So I go down and uh, started off as a part time, uh, part time uh, strength coach and continued to work with a bunch of teams, adjunct taught, and that continued to uh, eventually transcend into, you know, more roles within the department um, to my, you know, upper administrative role as I have today. Um, where I serve as the senior associate athletics director for administration. So I'm going to jump back quickly and tell me about the jump. I guess it was from Pitt to Auburn. Yeah. How, how did that manifest? And I'm curious specifically because, you know, Auburn in terms of profile mm -hmm. is bigger on the national stage, not, not better per se, but just bigger. And I'm wondering how you, how did you get kind of tied into that? Right. Well, the, the coaching world, specifically the strength, strength and conditioning coaching world is very, it's not very large. It's very small. A lot of people know everybody, right? Um, so because of that, networking is extremely important, not just for strength conditioning, for, for, for all careers, but it was that element of, of knowing and uh, knowing that networking was going to help me. And so the my mentor, Todd Hammer, early on was like, we got to get you down to Pitt because Tim Belts at Pitt also knows a lot of coaches. And when I went down and, you know, you do a good job for a coach, then they'll, they'll be a reference and they'll um, advocate for you. And so when I was at Pitt, um, I remember working with Tim and Tim would be like, well, you got to go down and work with Kevin Yox. Or you got to go down with Yox. And, and they, I feel like, you know, it was interesting. And, and maybe because of some of my assistants too, I feel like I've heard the same thing. It's like you work with a particular coach and they're like, Oh, you've got to go work with this guy. You know what I mean? They always have their guy that they're, um, that they're really working towards. And so, and so that's, that's really how it happened. Uh, I got the, uh, the football internship down there after working at Pitt and, and it was great. It was a phenomenal experience. Yeah. You, you bring up something so relevant to, I would say anyone who wants to get into athletics, I know that networking is big in a lot of other careers, but if you're interested in athletics, uh, networking is massive. Uh, and I know in my younger career, I resisted it. I felt, nah, I'm going to get by on my talent or whatever, and to my detriment. And I'm wondering, did you did you know that right away? Did you feel like that's something you were good at, or did you have to learn that process? I think with networking, you know, it's I, it was probably instilled in me from my mentor because he was very, very intentional about that um, to the point where you know, I don't know if it was actually a natural thing from his personality because he is very extroverted, but I mean, we would go to a conference and he would make an effort to talk to everybody um, just in, gen you know, and, and maybe it was just small talk, but what he would do is he would have all of his interns, anybody you talk to that you didn't know um, and have a formal relationship with after the conference, you always make a note after you talk to everybody. And at the end of the conference, we, we'd get this packet that had emails for every individual who was at the conference. He was like, email every single person that you make an asterisk or a little star next to. Like you talk to them, even if it was a little small talk, it was 30 seconds. 
you're going to do a, you're going to reach out to every single one. And that was a very intentional process that as a, um, you know, senior and undergrad, um, as a, a first year grad student, you know, you, you probably, you don't have a lot of confidence in yourself as a coach. So maybe you're not really willing to put yourself out there. He made you get into your uncomfortable uh, zone with that. And so that really helped. That really helped. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like that was a tremendous mentor and comparing where you were at, you know, 21 to where I was at 21, I think you were light years ahead. So, uh, you know, credit to, to mentoring and credit to you for picking up on that. So the next question, because I, I you have a really interesting journey, um, tell me a little bit about what you learned maybe at each institution, what the feel was like, or what you took away from those experiences. Yeah. Um, so so Robert Morris was very from a from a practitioner side of strength conditioning that opened my eyes to all these different doors of how to do it, right? How to get from A to B, whatever B is. Um, in regards to increasing, enhancing, you know, physical performance, sport performance. From a leadership side, um, it was very good at teaching me how to learn to control the room. So, for example, when I and when I say control, I don't mean from the point of view of actually controlling. I mean from controlling maybe and being more becoming more self-aware with my own communication styles, with my own self-regulation on my communication style. So that I also understood, um, okay, hold yourself. Don't have that emotional outburst yet because you know, you're trying to learn the influence tactics, uh, of, uh, of just, of just generally leading a group of individuals. So that was really good because it was very much a training ground for me to try to be able to identify the nuances of that. And because I worked with a lot of teams, I had a lot of repetition and that was probably one of the things that, when I reflect and look back, it was those repetitive elements of running groups, running teams through lifts, doing conditioning sessions, um, just being in front of other human beings and try and being in a leadership role that really helped me zero in on how I like to lead. Right. Um, and that was really at Robert Morris. Um, at Pitt, it was a lot more specific on the, it was like almost a finishing school on prehab rehab specificity with basketball. Um, and it was very, very, very specific. Also a different style of how the, um, the coach at the time who I was working under would work the room. So I, I noticed with him, he had a very high degree of versatility in how he would communicate from athlete a versus B. And that taught me a lot about, you know, how do you, how to really kind of tailor, different ways that you say things so that they get it right. You, you figure you have the athlete that comes in who's not really understanding the coaching cues that you're saying. Right. And you keep saying it, keep saying it. And you're wondering why the light bulb hasn't turned on. But what I noticed with him was how he changed a lot of um, some of the coaching cues of the lingo. It would just turn on right away. Could you give us some examples for maybe people that aren't necessarily familiar with this idea, but how language and the brain work together. So could you give us an example about some cueing? Okay. Um, so, uh, well, with that said, okay, well, I think there's different, because there's definitely different ways that you can look at this. Because one could be, think about the, pro, the, the, the prototypical yeller coach, right? The one that screams, the one that is always in your face. What are they really trying to do? They're trying to drive up a very aroused state in the other individual 
and to try to have some form of illicit response, whatever that is, right? So there's probably pros of that, right? When you look at the arousal state and you're trying to have that optimal level, there's definitely benefits to that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to do that in order to get the illicit response, whatever that is, right? So it depends on what A and what depends on what B is when you're looking at that. And so when we were thinking uh, or going through, one of the things that I remember is the coaching cues, you know, that that particular coach would use for teaching like something like a box squat. Um, or some form of barbell lift squat um, was different to a degree than maybe the cues that would be used at a different institution that I was at. And what I mean by that is it's still the same thing. It might be, you know, uh, you know, shift your hips back, right, from one school, whereas another could be, um, you know, uh, sit in a chair, right? Two different things, similar, uh, you know, anatomical action, but at the same time, too, you notice the light bulb that comes on differently. So you're changing the way you say it, even though it's the same thing. It's a it's a new representational redescription of what you're doing. And yeah. that's really what I learned. So there's this really interesting analog in soccer coaching. And it's, it comes out of Europe, of course. But it, it's a general term is called action language. So... If we're both soccer coaches, we coach any sport, but I say to a player, go pressure the ball. And you say to the player, go pressure the ball. What I'm hearing and how it's relevant is that could be two very different things. Your meaning of pressure the ball and my meaning of pressure the ball, two different things. So then let's say it's a youth setup, for example, where I have a team for a year or two years and then they go to you. Well, all of a sudden it's an unlearning process. They have to unlearn the cues that they learn with me and then relearn. That's a, that's a lack of efficiency. And the, the action language approach is, can we have a unified language? You do what you see. So run at the player and try to win the ball. I'm just giving you an example. So yeah. if we all use that unified language, there's a consistency. Am I close to that? I mean, do you feel that synergy between those examples? No, absolutely. I think, you know, and this kind of, and this, you know, what we talked about, this gets into, how do you identify also from a cultural standpoint, what are those specific words? Maybe it's not coaching cues. Maybe it's actually, you know, the espoused values that you have, or maybe it's the behaviors that you're trying to, that, that actually seep into the same thing when you're looking at it from a, a cultural stance with the various teams. So I, I a hundred percent agree with that. It is very specific. It's very similar to that. Um, and definitely a pit for sure. So just a quick aside, because you brought it up, what's your definition of culture? Because we're going to talk about it. Oh, geez. My definition of culture, the, uh, the collective beliefs, behaviors, and assumptions of a group of people tackling a challenge. Love it. Uh, we, so that was a quick sideline, but let's go back. Uh, so you're at Pitt. Yeah. You mean... Take us through that. So queuing was a big part of, of your development there. And then what happened next? Yeah. And then eventually uh, I got down to Auburn with football and, and Auburn really coach Ox is phenomenal, phenomenal coach. He, um, he taught me a lot more about the discipline element to it of, of the strength side and just the sheer, and also to be honest, it's just a different level uh, of athlete. Um, it would, you know, an SEC football player is, 
is one step closer to, you know, so close to the NFL, the level of athletes, just unbelievable. I remember we would run, we would run a camp um, rivals.com camps and we would see these athletes come in and, you know, just have a 40, 40 inch vertical. Like it was, you know, after a you know, quick two minute warm up, like it was nothing. And I just remember thinking like, these are unbelievable athletes. Um, but he really taught and uh, really showed embodied really the story he was uh, telling us, which was about consistency and discipline in action. Um, and that, that was, that was really good for, for me to see what would be like, because then at that point I was, you know, trying to compare what were some of the idiosyncrasies of that culture with the other cultures that I had worked with. And then you get into that comparison element and try to figure that out. And you go down the rabbit hole really, because there's so many variables that you're trying to look at. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So you said story and that is really intriguing to me. Maybe what's the power of story to you or, or what was the power of story that you saw used at Auburn? Well, with, I think with Auburn, it's, um, you know, they're very established. They're very well known. They have a very strong brand. Um, they, you know, it, at that time, um, the coach, the head coach at the time was newer, um, but there was a very dr strong drive towards a consistent connectedness towards a direction, right? Whatever that direction is. Maybe that was um, winning a national championship, right? At other schools, it might be winning the conference. Um, it might be something else that's not wins loss. It might be, you know, having a really strong GPA, doing community work. So the story, when I say the story, it was the consistent, we, I mean, we're, we're humans innately like to make sense of their environment through story. So because of that, um, I would say not just depending on the story that you're telling in that leadership role, but embodying what you're saying. And I think there sometimes can be disconnects um, in coaching where, you know, they'll, they'll espouse, they'll, they'll promulgate the story of what they're trying to get accomplished, but yet maybe the behaviors aren't congruent and how fast can we see athletes see something that's incongruous with their coach. Yeah. I, I actually wrote a, a blog article about this a while back because what I've seen in several institutions, and this is the example I see is player a isn't playing as much as he or she wants go to the coach coach. What can I do instead of having what I think is a very honest and direct conversation about, Hey, you know what? I think somebody else is going to help us more than you. They give what I call a checklist. So then they say, Rick, you know what? I'd really like to see you work harder. So in the next practice, here's Rick just sprinting, sweating, sprinting, looking at me the whole time as a coach. Come into the office. You say, coach, I was working hard today. So because, again, I can't have an honest conversation with you, I say, I give you another checklist. Well, you know what? Let's just, I'll say soccer. You need to pass the ball harder. So... What I feel and what I've seen is now the trust in the coach has been completely undermined because at some point the athlete's going to say, this is crap. Like, this is just a waste of my time. And the story, as you said, incongruous, the story is getting eroded with that. Um, and I love that you drew attention to that because I think that's the power very much in athletics. Athletics is filled with stories. Absolutely. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. And, and I think the, the problem when you're not congruent with what you say in that story, because you're using the story really to leverage the emotional stance of the athlete to be able to have whatever that elicit response is. Right. And, and, and it's not, you know, we can go down the rabbit hole of determinism, right? Like, like what you know, we've talked about before, it's like, you know, it's not just, you know, you do this and that means you get this outcome. There's chaos. You know, it, we are very much elements of systems. So I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, so it's not just that simple, but um, it does erode at the story that you tell. And the story is what is helping leverage the emotional output of the human that you're leading. So, you know, I, I think that was a, it was very, um, very good for me uh, in my journey, especially from a leadership role too, to understand more of the human element to that um, and how important that is um, at a little bit more of a macro level when you're trying to lead a group of individuals. I went yeah. back, went back to Robert Morris again and, and really kind of developed more into myself as a coach uh, because I had more repetition from a practitioner side and strength and conditioning. I had more reps at writing programs. So that helped me out a lot in my GA. Um, and, and then I get to Longwood as a part-time. So I want to go back because I need your help. And I want to understand strength and conditioning a little bit better. You and I had a, a previous conversation and... Uh, in that conversation, we were talking about the origins of uh, sports in America. And certainly the, one of the biggest ones is, is football, which comes from more of a military style coach dominant uh, sport. And, and you were saying, and again, correct me anytime if I'm wrong, but a lot of strength and conditioning methodologies came out of football. And while yeah. they're, they're great for football, they're not great for every sport. So from my standpoint as a soccer coach, all the research coming out of the top clubs in Europe, for example, the strength and conditioning coaches there, everything is done in the context of the sport. So if we're kicking a ball for running in the field, there's nothing that's just like a stagnant here, lift a weight. It's going to be all integrated into the, into the field. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk a little bit about, how you see maybe the state of strength and conditioning, what you've experienced, where you could see it with go, to go. And then my, my second question is, you know, if I were to go back in the coaching today, how do I have that conversation with a strength and conditioning coach that might not have that background of, no, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to be in a weight room. I want to be doing right. stuff with a ball on the field. Right. Well, you know, it, it has very, you know, the field has transcended more into analytics um, it has, you know, even with, you know, if it's not, you know, GPS systems to monitor external load, uh, it, it maybe it's monitoring velocity in the weight room and how fast you're moving the bar. Um, you know, maybe it's getting down to the point where um, I've even heard of coaches doing blood tests to determine, you know, the levels of nutrients in the blood. So there's, it's getting a lot more specific, right? It's getting a lot more um, very much um detailed um in there and I, and I do think too that you know over time as we we continue to evolve in the research it is the field itself is very research driven um and so you know i think that has been some of the main changes probably within last year now i can i can see it continually going that route to where specialty um is really evolving further into the field 
Um, and, and even from a, if you, if you looked at the state from a, an athletics point of view, there's more, there's more sports nutritionists now in athletic departments. There's, and before a lot of strength coaches had to take on that kind of uh, wear that hat a little bit more if they didn't have a school that could fund that position. There's more sp sports psychology people now in within that, um, you know, so that kind of wheelhouse is definitely moving forward further in regards to what would you do if you went back to coaching and maybe you had a uh, old school style, right? Uh, coach. Um, I would say that it would probably be hard because you would need to have a degree of patience um, with them. Because I'll be honest, I, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to strength coaches who are in that role where they have the coach that's coming in and telling them how to do their job. And so at all of this, you know, is really built off the success of all this is really built off common ground and strong relationships. And it's not cliche, even though we say it, right. It's not cliche. It is real. It's a real thing. If I have a very strong relationship with you and I trust you, I'm going to be more willing especially if I have more rapport with you, I'm going to be more willing to hear out what, you know, what do you have? Like, what have you heard? What, you know, are you open to that? Um, and if we have a really strong rapport, then chances are I'm going to be willing to find common ground with you to come halfway and to learn new skills. And then it might just be that they have that particular individual might not be exposed yet to that style of thinking. Cause that's really all it is. It's just different styles of thinking, different thought processes and, different scopes of competence, depending on if it's a skill related element. You brought up communication. Now I know that communication is a topic that's very important to you. Um, and so I guess let's go forward to go backwards and, you know, tell me about leveraging relationships and communication and how you see that maybe integrated or pushing towards uh, another evolution of the sports administrative paradigm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, you know, as I progressed, when I first got to Longwood, um, I was able and very, very thankful because of the athletic director, my, my, my supervisors, they were able to uh, continually try to help me gain a little bit more responsibility as I asked for it and expand. Um, and eventually, we, we came into a point where I had advanced to administration and we had started to create something called or we call student athlete enhancement and student athlete enhancement is essentially a consolidated unit within our department that has sports performance, strength conditioning, um, sports medicine, academics, as well as compliance. And, you know, the benefit to that is they're all student athlete enhancement driven. They're, they're very, very, um, high on having interpersonal communication on a daily basis with student athletes. And where I see the crosses that, you know, there is a level of interpersonal communication that a strength coach or a sport performance coach might have that maybe the athletic trainer doesn't have, that maybe the academic advisor doesn't have. And, but at the same time too, we're all in the same wheelhouse of trying to understand and influence stress. So maybe the sport performance coach is going to influence stress from a physical side. Um, you know, maybe athletic training is going to do that too. Maybe academics is going to 
um, really try to influence the stressors on the academic load. Um, maybe the coach, the sport coach is going to be influencing on a multitude of levels, right? So understanding what's going on with that particular individual is going to help you have better insight. And if you have better insight, potentially you can make better decisions. And so let's use the example of, um, you know, the athlete who comes in, who has a really strong relationship with the academic advisor, but doesn't necessarily have a strong rapport with the AT or the strength coach. And they go into the, into uh, their office and they say, Hey, yeah, how are you doing that? You see, they, they identify that they're obviously distraught or they're really upset. Right. And they ask them what's going on. And they're like, well, you know, my uncle died. Right. And that's terrible. Right. And then she goes and he or she goes through and consoles the athlete or student. And, and from there, you know, if I don't know that I'm the strength coach and they come into the weight room and I'm going off 110% max intensity. And I'm wondering why they're not particularly, you know, doing the right intensities or going up weight or, or pushing harder. Right. And I don't know any of that stuff. You know, it would have been beneficial for me to know what's going on. And so if I don't have that rapport, it's going to be tough for me. If that athlete goes to a practice and their coach is then going off the hinges and they don't know about that information, that's tough too. And so are you actually doing more harm than good? And we talked in our previous conversation too about that, like your communication style has a physiological impact on another individual, not just the other individual doing the physiological stuff you're coaching. So let me give you the devil's advocate here. I'll set you up. Who cares about stress? Everyone's stressed. Why is stress relevant to student athletes? Hmm. When we, well, stress is relevant <laughs> to student athletes because when we look at what we're trying to do again, whether it be an A to B and B might be, become an individual, a better individual, better human. It could be get a job when you're, when you're out of undergrad, it could be go to the pros, it could be get stronger in this lift. If you win more games, all of it relates to adaptation. You have to adapt. Stress matters because if you don't monitor that and you don't have an idea of what's going on, it has a tendency to just continue to go and you can get off the hinges. What, what do we see now nationally? We see tons and tons of mental health. Mental health is up. Um, we see a high amount of scream dominant behavior. Well, and obviously right now, particularly because of COVID, um, we don't have much of a choice with that with obviously telehealth and uh, you know classes all on Zoom. And, and, and so we did something you know, even, even more wild, we went from constantly being on our phones and then we went on constantly being on our phones and on our computer screens because of that too. So it's even more of a challenge because we feel almost more disconnected. Stress matters because if you identify and know how much stress, stress elicits the response. And that adaptation, that adaptation we're trying to get from that response, that is what is going to create hopefully better, higher platforms for success in whatever variable that you want to measure yeah and, and we had this conversation too uh, first of all shout out to miranda ralston at william james college uh who's done a lot of research in this area but 
you know, from a neurological standpoint, I, I give you the metaphors, let's have a basketball court and let's put a live bear on the basketball court and then have a practice. So it is almost impossible to be thinking about basketball uh, when there is a threat, the physical threat of a bear. And yet in many ways, coaches, uh, the institution of sports are dominated by this idea of the coaches are just bombarding student athletes with stress and on top of social stress, academic stress, and, and thus expecting them to be able to, you know, analyze and perform at high levels. Meanwhile, they got that metaphorical bear running around and it's really difficult to, to focus on the task at hand. And, and I think that is often overlooked. And I know you have a lot of interest in um, kind of neurobiology and I'm wondering what that, how that sits with you. Oh, no, abso- no absolutely. I mean, think of it from um, the, the amygdala is going to go out the wire, right? And it becomes the hijack. And so when we think about the, the neurobiology of it, it's unbelievable to me because I don't think people associate, even just regular, you know, a general manager in a business, people do not associate that the word choice that they use and how they say it will dictate the thought choice or the physiological response at times of the individual you're leading. It might not even be a word. It could be a nonverbal. Case in point, I'm driving to work. Somebody cuts me off. So I flick the person off. Right. The nonverbal act, because they don't hear me because they're in their car of me flicking the person off, maybe infuriates them even further, which raises their blood pressure. You know, it's uh, it's Batari's box. And that's, you know, the element of the idea that, you know, my attitude affects my behavior, which affects your attitude, which affects your behavior Um, and that consistent feedback loop that we have on it. Uh, but it's no different. It's no different whatsoever. And, and so when, when a coach can identify that, how they speak, or a leader, not just a coach, a, gen, a leader, how they speak, how they communicate um, is going to have so many different ramifications. That's how you can identify and really build yourself as an influencer. So how does a, a leader figure that out? Well, I honestly think it's through feedback. Right. There's this constant, constant um, feedback circle that we have and you you don't necessarily see it because maybe it's an abstract. Right. But if I if I go up and I say, um, you know, hey, like um, I need you to do this better this time and they don't do it. okay, well, maybe I didn't say it the right way. Um, Maybe I needed to really uh, work on my inflection the next time. Maybe I need to stand in a different area. Maybe I need to not be so domineering in my nonverbals. Maybe I need to identify what type of facial expressions I'm going to say. Now, you could also say that, all right, yeah, I get it. A leader could do and try to control all these different things, and it still won't matter, right? Because something else might be going on. And that's the beauty of all this. The beauty of all this is that you aren't always going to have the answer. You might think you have the answer, but you're probably not always going to have the answer. And that's the best part because it keeps it interesting. That's and honestly from some of the most passionate coaches and administrators, leaders that I've met, it's that they're constant learners and it, it, it just a feedback because 
you know, you realize as you learn more and as you, you do your own self-education or even formal education, you continue to study, you realize as you go that you actually don't know a lot. So it keeps you really interested. Yeah. And I've, you know, this is fascinating, but having been a coach and worked with a lot of coaches, it's so much of a siloed activity and it's so easy to get sucked into the fact of, Hey, I have a game coming up. My job is dependent on success. Like I have to get success. And you know, what you're bringing in is having an openness, not only to diffuse power in a way to empower other people, but also to simply have an awareness of looking at your cause and effect. So instead of looking at your player as a, just a physical person that is reacting to your, your, what you say is when you say something, what, what is the effect? How does it change their body language? Does it change their body language? And that's really fascinating. And I think, um, I think there's, it's, it's fleeting. I, I think there's a fleeting, uh, dedication to that sort of thing in coaching. And I do, if you go through the, uh, the whole spectrum of emotional intelligence, I think, you know, people who have a tendency to have obviously more self-awareness and self-regulation within their own emotional output, but also have that social awareness. Right. And, and then at the end, obviously really trying to build and maintain strong relationships. I think those are some of the best coaches, the coaches that have some of the higher degrees of emotional intelligence, I think they're very strong. And a lot of coaches I've worked with, they, they get that and they identify even with them, their own self. Self-awareness is one of the, probably the, that could be fleeting at times um, with leaders. And um, the self-regulation piece is another one. Like I could, I could sit down with you and, or a student athlete and, and they may have a high degree of self-awareness and they could describe everything that they know is actually inhibiting their success, but they don't have, the actual regulation piece at times, it's going to be tough. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. And I do think that as you can, as you continue as sports performance continues to evolve, uh, athletic departments continue to evolve. Um, I do believe that there will be a more holistic approach to providing the most productive student athlete experience. And that student athlete experience um, will have, I believe, a component of stress um, understanding. That is such a great segue to the next topic, uh, which is, unlike most administrators I know, you are actually still a coach of sorts. You're still working as a strength and conditioning coach. And with the backdrop of emotional intelligence, communication, stress, how do you navigate those two different identities? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I first started getting into more administration, my, my AD um, at the time, he actually uh, let me kind of expand into the leadership development piece for our student athletes. That was kind of what started me off into more of administration and it got me out of the weight room a little bit more. So I still work with our women's soccer team here at Longwood. Um, so the balance between almost work identities, right? What I found was as I continue to expand into more of administration where I am now, in anthropology, there's a, there's a phase, I believe it's called the liminality phase. Um, and it's essentially a midpoint in a rite of passage that there's this disorientation for an individual. Um, that's essentially what I would go through 
every time I took on additional admin responsibilities, there'd be like this disorientation of this cascade collapse of me trying to figure out what am I doing? Like, what should I be doing right now? And so it was this competing, um, constant competing between work identities. Am I a coach? Am I an administrator? Do I even need to have these two different types of classifications? <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, definitely a challenge because, you know, I'm going on the ground level working on the day to day with the student athlete. Um, but then also maybe I'm going across campus and I'm working um, on a, a subcommittee for campus on leadership development or, um, uh, you know, managing our scholarship budget. So the, the, the thing that I like about it is I like being a generalist. It's more around my personality. Um, I'm also, I, I, if my thought process is to get really spacey and I can get bored easily, I'm better as a generalist. So I'm tackling a lot of different things. Yeah. What, um, you know, again, in our previous conversation, you know, what's it like having the student athlete's ear at the same time the coach's ear? Is, is that a conflict or do you see them synergistically? You know, how do you navigate those two spaces? Right. Well, I, I think, you know, with the, with maintaining strong relationships, as you build trust, you're going to have sometimes conflicting elements, right? You're going to have, you know, maybe the, the athlete that comes and says that, you know, they're upset with their coaches and they're not getting a lot of playing time. Um, but then you also get a higher viewpoint of also understanding the whole collective when you're sitting down with the coach. I think it is very synergistic. There has to be trust on all levels. And sometimes maybe you have to uh, play the, um, the moderator between the two. Sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's going to be tough because maybe there's a, uh, you know, unconscious power dynamic that's going on. Um, that could really challenge those relationships. So you have to be intentional with that. You have to understand that. You have to be very mindful that you're not putting yourself in tough positions. Uh, but there is very much a benefit to that because you could be serving as an outlet at times, right? Because with that stress, you're going to get the stress in the sense of you get the you get to identify what that stress is, and they're going to come to you and they and they may use you as an outlet, the coach or the student athlete. Let's go to a macro level, and I'm so happy to speak to you about this, but because uh, you and I have a great time going down some rabbit holes. But one of these questions is, what if we designed an athletic department around reducing, I'm not going to say eliminating, reducing and or reshifting stress to a, to a positive level? What would that look like or feel like to you? Well, that it has very... Uh tenants, close tenants of, uh, of Carol Dweck's growth mindset. There we go. Now she's back. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it, to, to me, because, um, I think it's easy to look at stress from a negative connotation a negative platform, but stress is what also helps you get to a higher level of adaptation. So there's positives to that. Um, and when we're looking at it from a point of view of the uh, you know, a holistic element for an athletic department, you, we have to understand the positives, the negatives, um, and also the ob objectivity of just being able to try to understand how to manage it, you know, because, you know, life happens. Um, this is a stressful, very stressful time in history 
we have so many different variables that we're tackling um, just as a country that I think it's very, very um, apropos to look at how can you best help and understand all of the stressors and the load of the athlete, of the coach, of the staff member, and what type of environment can you create? Because that's really what leaders are doing. They're creating the environments. Um, that's going to be the most advantageous. So, you know, you talk about adaptation. Let's go there. What What is athletics to you in, in the time of COVID? How has it impacted Longwood? How has it impacted you? And then, you know, what what are you doing as an administration to, you know, make new sense out of what it means to be a student athlete, a coach, uh, et cetera? Right. Well, I, I think it's important. It's a challenge because you want to maybe you you want to keep the main thing, the main thing. Right. It's going to be easy when you have all of these different things going on. Believe COVID has challenged all administrators to be very um, patient and intentional thinkers and how they have gone to tackle a problem of such chaos and complexity. It's uh, the uh, VUCA, uh, volatil volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity is all COVID. And so it's it's been a very good teacher for me in the last year because as I'm going through, I want to be proactive with things, but there are some things I'm going to have to be reactive. And as you're going through and you're trying to plan, how do we even tackle this to be able to give our athletes a, an opportunity to be able to compete? You know, you, you're balancing all of these things, like all the NCAA uh, uh, guidelines and the big our conference guidelines, you're balancing all this stuff. Um, but at the same time too, you're also thinking your head the humanistic side, like what's going on with my staff? How are they handling this? Um, you know, what's going on uh, within the greater community? How are we handling this? So it requires this whole, this whole hurdle that everybody's jumping requires you to take a step back and to keep perspective while getting into the nitty gritty and the details that is COVID, which is tons of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've, seen it and felt it in many different athletic departments. You know, as we get close to our time here, having the experience you've had, if you were to, you know, talk to someone interested in, in getting into administration, what's, what's the thing that you wish everyone knew about leading athletic departments? Ooh, that's a good one. that you have to be versatile. Now, I might be biased to that because I have a very generous role, but when I say versatile, um, a level of versatility in maybe your communication style, a level of versatility in um, your understanding of maybe general leadership tactics um, and influence tactics. And on that same, uh, on that same topic, because you do work with coaches, what do you wish every young coach knew? Hmm. hmm. I think 
That's a really good one. I would have them maybe ask themselves why, why do they coach? Because what I noticed for myself when I first started in early in strength conditioning was it was very easy to get caught up in the quantitatives, the numbers, you know, maybe the equivalent analogistically for them is the win loss percentage. Um, but you know, for me, it was easy to go record chasing. Eventually down the line, I just felt empty, right? And I had to go back and really identify why did I really love it? And, and that was more about the quali qualitative. It was more about the people. It was more about um, the relationships that you're building. As cliche as it may sound, uh, you come back to it, you know, and it, it fills you a lot more than just saying that you um, had certain numbers that you hit. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really making me think a lot, too, um, about my own experience. And kind of right, right in, in chorus with that, I would say an understanding of how little you can control. Truly, there is this bias in athletics that a coach can control the world, essentially. And in reality, you can barely control anything. Your, your players are, as you said, chaotic. And yeah. the more you embrace your, your lack of control, the better. Well, uh, that's actually a really interesting point. So it's, it's, what I always find that's very interesting is the, the idea of a very, very strong internal locus of control, but at the same time to having a balance to the point that you not become a control freak. Hmm. So some of the coaches, some of the athletes I've worked with that I thought were extremely successful had the very high degree of an internal locus of control that they could, they could impact that outcome, whatever that is. But they didn't let it get to the point that it got to that they felt like they had to control everything or could really control everything. And that is a, an ebb and flow balance. Rick, we could probably talk for another two hours. Uh, this has been truly fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Where can people learn more about either you or the program? Do you have social media? So uh, I'm not on social media. The only social media account I have right now is uh, is Instagram. Um, I do actually I, I would post a lot of uh, what I was currently reading. Um, I used to post a lot of book stuff on there. So my Instagram is just at Rick Hanner, um, but I'm not really on a lot of other social media. The best way to reach me is my email. Um, if you go to the Longwood Lancers uh, website, um, you could find it from the staff directory. Um, but uh, I'm always willing to, uh, to talk to anybody interested. Rick, thanks so much. This has been absolutely fascinating, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.